I've got to say, uh, it's a little bittersweet for me to come to the end of Nehemiah. I always get started, or get excited when we start new books of the Bible, and I really didn't anticipate Nehemiah having such an impact on my life as it has. And so, you know, although I'm a little sad to be leaving the book on Sundays, I'm very, you know, grateful for how practical, how applicable it's been in my my own heart and just the, the great discussions that have come out of a connection group and how sweet that time has been here in the past few months. Uh, it's just been a real blessing. And, and so Nehemiah still has lessons to teach us. And so before we wrap them up, uh, we're going to jump right in. Um, if, you, if you're not there already, turn to chapter 13. Um, we've been reading in the chapters leading up to Nehemiah 13 of all the provisions, all the blessing that God has set in place when people were committed to him. Um, we've seen Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah come back, restore Israel to the land. Uh, we've seen the temple get built. We've seen the walls fortified. We've seen the city populated. Um, and then now in the last few chapters, 10, 11, and 12, we finally see that Israel's got their hearts right for worship for the first time in a very long time. Even at the end of chapter 12, um, it said that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off, like Israel was on fire, right? And the, the end of 12, it kind of marks this time in Israel's history when the future was looking bright for the first time in a very, very long time. And Nehemiah, it's at this time that he heads back to Persia, to the palace where he's come from, to report to King Artaxerxes all the, the awesome, amazing things that have been happening in Jerusalem. And so after he's gone for a little while, he decides he's going to come back to Jerusalem. And this is probably after years that he's in Persia. And that's where we pick up in 13. But here's the thing. When he came back to Israel, he found that they were backslidden into the sins that ca ca caused their captivity in the first place. The Israelite people who just made a covenant with uh, God in Nehemiah 10 had already broken their vows. And the Jews, they failed to, to fuel that fire of faith when Nehemiah left. And once again, they're placing themselves under the judgment of God. And so the story of Israel, you know, it's, it's, it's not much different than our own. It's true of every one of us that, that we are just as guilty of, as Israel is for forgetting God's grace, forgetting God's goodness in our lives. We get comfortable, we get complacent, we begin to neglect our faithful responsibilities. And before you know it, the, the fire that's in our hearts, it dwindles out. And so today we're going to read about how Nehemiah acted decisively. He acted swiftly to kind of correct these issues, keep Israel from losing their identity in God. And he does this by confronting them with their sin doesn't dodge anything. He's just very confronting with them, with their failed promises, with their sin. He takes these extreme measures that we're going to see, but they're appropriate. They're appropriate measures to ensure that Israel holds up their covenant with God. And so if you would join me in verses one through three, it says on that day, they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. And so it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. So Nehemiah does the first thing 
that you can do in a situation when you're not right with God. He, he seeks God's counsel. And the way that he does this is, is in the clearest possible way, right? He goes to God's word. And it's, it's the first violation that's found here that Nehemiah brings up against the people, but it's found while they're, they're worshiping. They're, they're reading God's word aloud. And, and the word here, you know, that they're reading, God's word, is, is it's absolute truth, right? We heard Pastor Howard uh, preach on Wednesday, you know, about the relativism in our culture and how truth changes and everybody's got their own truth, but God's truth is a standard. It doesn't change. It stays the same. And here, you know, they're reading the book of Moses, the, the law specifically, the Pentateuch, and, and it's acting like a mirror. It reflects to us, you know, uh, who we are and that, how far we fall short of, of God's perfect standard. And it should push us towards repentance. But what's interesting here is, is even though that they were worshiping, right? They're in, they're in this congregation, they're worshiping, but this is where they discovered where they're wrong. And so and that tells us, like, you know, even though we're worshiping in the church, even though we're in the midst of his people, even though we're raising our hands uh, in worship, it doesn't mean that we're not susceptible to sin. Everybody's susceptible to sin. And this passage of scripture here, it's dealing with, you know, not having associations with unbelievers. And here we're talking about the Ammonites and the Moabites who were allowed in the assembly within the temple. And God established this rule, you know, it wasn't uh, have anything to do with ethnicity or race or anything like that. You know, in fact, we know from, from Ruth, the book of Ruth, that Ruth was a Moabite. And, you know, she even said she wanted to follow Naomi's God and make Naomi's God her own God, right? An actual Ruth is actually a, a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. She's actually in the lineage of Christ, a Moabite. So this doesn't have anything to do with race. But there were people in the congregation who didn't follow the true God of Israel, who didn't recognize Yahweh as the God of heaven and earth. And therefore, when they were accepted into the Israelite society, their anti-God views, their, their false God religions, all that permeated through the society. And as a result, the Israelites would backslide. And they fell into sin. They rebelled against God. And so God has standards that are set in place so that, that we would be preserved. So that, that we would keep ourselves under the care, under the provision of God. And the Ammonites and the Moabites, they, they were people, too, who back in the early days of Israel, they were antagonistic to Israel. They didn't want them entering into the promised land. And they fought Israel at every opportunity they could. They hired Balaam to pronounce a curse on them, which we read here that God turns that curse into a blessing. But, you know, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they kept pressuring Balaam to come up with something to get the Israelites out. And so Balaam devises this scheme for the Moabites to infiltrate the society and get the sons and daughters of Israel to marry the Moabites, take on their customs, take on their religions, take on their, their false worship. And if you ever get a chance, read Numbers 25, 1 through 8. It talks about this situation, but the Moabite women, they, they went in there deliberately to seduce the men of Israel to have sex with them, to marry them, and they succeeded, and they turned all these men away from the God of Israel to worship Baal. And as a result, God sent Moses and the chiefs of Israel to gather up all these men. He hung 24,000 men in the desert under the sun for God, for yoking themselves to false gods. 
I mean, God takes this very seriously. And the point is, when we keep bad company around us, we tend to take on their bad tendencies. We like to think that we can have associations that won't affect us. Like, our faith is too strong that we won't fall into the sins of our associations. We're not talking here about random associations. We're not talking about acquaintances. We're talking about our inner circle, those that have an influence over our thought process, our decision-making. 1 Corinthians 15, says, Don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good morals. Right? My dad used to tell me all the time growing up in Los Angeles that I was going to get caught up in the trouble of my, what he would call, hoodlum friends. And, uh, you know, I used to tell him, you know, even though... Uh, I'm running around with these guys in the neighborhood. I'm just a neighborhood kid. I run around with them too. I'm not going to do what they do. They're just my friends. I'm not going to get caught up with what they're doing. And he used to tell me all the time, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And, you know, I used to think at the time, you know, it was such a, a, a corny and kind of stereotypical thing to say. And at that time, you know, um, you know, I was young, but my dad spoke from experience. In his youth, he ran around with some sketchy characters, but by a divine miracle, somehow he, he retired um, in law enforcement as a, as a parole administrator in Southern California. And he was around this criminal element his whole life, right? And he knew that these kind of people that I was hanging, around, hanging out with were only going to bring me heartache. They're only going to bring me sorrow. And he's warning me. And it wasn't soon after that I found myself, you know, in trouble in the neighborhood, much to his displeasure, in trouble with the law. And it was all because I was being influenced by my friends. Now, what I've learned over the years is that, you know, a true friend is never going to want you to stray from God. Friends that, that lead you into sin, they don't have your true intentions in their hearts. True friends are, are encouragers. They seek your better welfare. Right? They speak truth to you. They're there to keep you falling into sin, falling into its traps. And Nehemiah here, he's a, he's a true friend of Israel. And he's urging Israel to repent because he knew that the influence of these other folks, the Ammonites, the Moabites, were going to wear them down. They were going to wear down the faithful and they were going to eventually participate in bad behavior. And so Nehemiah goes on in, in verses 4 through 9 here. He says, Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah and preparing for him a room in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw the household goods of Tobiah out of the room and then I commanded them to clean the room, cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Now, <clears throat> Nehemiah had discovered that the temple was being desecrated here. The Ammonite Tobiah 
had been given this large room in the temple to use however he, he needed. And there's a lot of commentators that will tell you that, you know, uh, Tobiah might have actually even been living in the temple. We don't know if that's true or not, but what's sad is that the priest, Eliashib, had provided this room to Tobiah. And Eliashib was one of the guys that was mentioned building the wall in earlier in chapters 3. And so he ends up turning into being a traitor. And if you remember in chapters 2, 4, and 6, Tobiah was one of the, the fiercest opponents that Nehemiah had and the Israelites had in rebuilding that wall. And once again here, we see that the Ammonites, they find a plan to influence God's people and undermine the will of God. And by giving Tobiah a room in God's holy temple, the high priest gives uh, ne uh, an enemy here of Nehemiah's and the people's a, a place to have a foothold in the politics, in the business, in the worship of Israel. You know, Israelite identity revolved around the temple. And Tobiah is here gaining more influence in the affairs of Israel because of the failed leadership of Eliashib. You know, the passage says here that Eliashib was allied with Tobiah. And this meant either through business or marriage. We don't know exactly how, but there's an indication in 1328. Um, it says that Eliashib's grandson was married to Sanballat's daughter. If you remember, Sanballat and Tobiah were conspirators with one another in the early chapters of Nehemiah. So he may have had a relative that was married to uh, Tobiah too. We don't know that for sure, but however it is, Eliashib, together with Tobiah, were desecrating the temple. Eliashib had misused his, his God-given right as a priest to exploit the people, to exploit the house of God, to seek after his own personal ambitions. And when Nehemiah returned and he sees this abomination, he's distressed. And he corrects the situation by throwing out all of Tobiah's belongings out of the house of God, and he orders the rooms to be cleansed. He orders them to be purified. And then he has the, the temple items that were removed, brought back in. And here's the principle. You know, des desecrating the house of God is, is a serious, serious offense. And there's two places in the New Testament that, that God calls the house of God, and one of them is the church, and the other is our bodies. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? The church is a place that is to be sanctified, to be holy, to be set apart for the praise, for the worship of God, for the study of his word. It's not a place for business. It's not a, a place for social gathering. It's not a place to, to, to build business partnerships for gossip, for, for secular activities. The Lord's Holy Spirit lives in both the church and the body of true believers. And when we gather together, we become the very sanctuary in which the Spirit of God dwells. You know, sometimes I'm more aware of that than others. You know, when we, when we have missionaries come and, and they speak to us about all the work that our church is involved with around the world, that, that, that's convicting for me to see how we're a part of that. 
You know, other times, you know, I hear somebody's testimony or I witness the baptisms on the screen and that just, that just moves my heart. Right? Often I'm, I'm, I'm convicted by the preaching of his word. You ever sit in your seat and just think, you know, somebody ratted me out to the pastor? You know, it's undeniable sometimes. You know, singing in worship. You know, sometimes it, it, it's so undeniable that I, I want to shed a tear. We experience that in this place. This is where God comes to meet us to reveal himself in a more special way. But listen, you and I are also the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're a dwelling for the living God. And so what I want to ask is like, what does your house look like? Right? What does your home look like? What is your heart? What is your mind? What does your soul look like? Are there images in your mind that the Lord would be ashamed of seeing? Is your soul divided? Is it wavering? Would God find his word written on your heart? You know, is your, is your temple cleaned out? God desires that, you know, that, that he dwells with us. And when the storage rooms of our hearts are cluttered with things that don't belong in heaven, that distract us from drawing closer to God, we need to do like Nehemiah does, and we need to throw all of that junk out. And so Nehemiah goes on in 13, 10 through 14, he says, I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them, for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work of God had gone back to his field. And so I contended with the rulers, and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and I set them in their place. And then all of Judah brought the tithe of grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shelemiah, the priest, and Zadok, the scribe, and of the Levites, Padiah, and next to them was Hanan, the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. And when Nehemiah was having the storerooms kind of ritually cleansed, he discovered that the temple and the religious workers were short of funds. And the people had stopped tithing. They stopped giving to the temple. And it's no coincidence that once you allow your affections, once you allow your loyalties to stray from God... You start investing in those other things. And the people, you know, they, they made a vow. They even put it in writing that they weren't going to forsake the Levites. And yet here they are, lax in their support for the temple. And as a result, the work of the temple was suffering. The Levites, they had to return to their homes. They had to take on secular work to support themselves. And they abandoned the work of God. You know, the Lord is adamant about supporting the ministers of God. And he warns the Israelites never to forsake the Levite priests. But listen, God also gives instruction, too, to the church. In 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, it says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. You know, Nehemiah, being a, a competent leader here, you know, he rebukes these government officials. He rebukes the, the, the rulers. 
and he holds them accountable for not encouraging the people to support God's house. And he calls the Levites to return to their duties. He calls the people to return giving their tithes. And finally, he removes Eliashib and his men from their positions of authority. And he replaces them with, with good, faithful, competent men. But most in, importantly, Nehemiah, you know, he's so overwhelmed with this corruption that he finds this deep sense of inadequacy for the task. And he initiates prayer with God. Something we've seen him do before, right? Nehemiah is strong and he's courageous, but he's also completely dependent and reliant on the will of God. And so he cries out for the people to respond in faith. He asks God to preserve him, to preserve the reforms that he's trying to enact. But for us, you know, when the church is neglected, God's word becomes seriously hindered. People are not ministered to. And when people without Christ are not reached, they're left in their sin and they spend eternity separated from God. All because the house of God and its ministers are not being supported. And when a church is a, is a true house of worship, the funds that God asks you to, to offer, they're not going to selfish means. You know, the pastors who are, are getting paid here, they're, they're not living lavishly, right? They're not taking, um, you know, expensive vacations and, 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 you know, trying to build these extravagant personal lives, right? In fact, many of you are aware that it wasn't until recently that our pastor became fully supported by this church. So that he can concentrate full time as our, as our shepherd. And think about the benefit that we've seen from that. Not that there was any deficiency before, but, <laughs> but I mean, it's a tremendous blessing that we've seen. We've seen the result of that. Supporting our pastors so that they can concentrate on the ministry of the church and provide for their families at the same time is, is a tremendous blessing that our church is able to accommodate. But listen, leadership in our church, too, is never begged for money, right? It's never coerced you into a giving requirement. It's never made you feel insecure by passing a plate in front of you. It's never compared or treated people differently based on their giving amounts. The church understands that, that once you, you know, once the word is implanted on the heart, that transformation begins to take place. And that's a characteristic of true believers that they're going to want to use their time. They're going to want to use their, their talents. They're going to want to use their finances to glorify God. And that says a lot about our church. It says a lot about our commitment as a church to be faithful. We support 24 missionaries across 14 different countries, affecting countless lives. You know, we're involved in local ministries. We're involved in the, the lives of congregants in this church. Soon we're going to be occupying a larger building, you know, because we're, we're getting close to capacity in this building. And, and we can do so because, you know, a large part is due to God's blessing, but it's, it's also the contributions of faithful people. And to be entering into a, a new place of worship that's going to accommodate more people is favor from God. He's allowing us to have a bigger voice, to have an influence with, with the unbelieving in our community. But just think, you know, if the people in the church, they lost their focus and their devotion wanes, 
right? And they're giving stops. The, the impact is devastating. The gospel gets watered down. Enemies creep in. The house of God deteriorates. Churches close. Think about how many ch churches have closed that you see around the neighborhood. Favor then moves to people who are faithful. God's work doesn't stop. We have a responsibility to use our financial blessings as a means to support first the work of God and his ministers, but you know, to relieve the pain and the suffering in this world. And our finances are, are one of the means that God uses to sustain ministry, to propel his work forward. It, it, it's an opportunity for us to be faithful, to be full of worship. And listen, Nehemiah goes on in 13, 15 through 22 here. He says, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about that day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. And then I contended with the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? And yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? And so it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to get dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be open till after the Sabbath. And then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought into, in on the Sabbath day. And now the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. And then I warned them and I said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Right? You ever, you ever run into people that just don't get it unless you lay hands on them? Well, listen, from that time, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Another violation here that Nehemiah calls out is that the people of God were neglecting to keep a day of the Lord holy. God required that on the Sabbath day be a, rest, a day of rest and worship for God. And they broke not only a vow here from chapter 10, but they broke a commandment that's written by the finger of God in stone, right? This is not just a, a day to, to stop, you know, conducting business. It's not a, a day... It, it, it's not a day to, to, to just, uh, you know, rest. It's, it's a day to recognize God. It's a, it's a day to recognize that he appoints man to, to rest, to, to be restored, to be replenished. And a violation of the Sabbath was the very charge that God gave for bringing them into captivity in the first place. Remember, in, uh, you know, they were in Babylon for 70 years, Babylon and Persia. That's one year for every Sabbath year that they failed to keep. Right? For 490 years, they were supposed to let the farm the land for six years, let the land rest on the seventh. And they failed to do that. They failed to, to trust God for their sustenance and their, their provision. They failed that test, that, that measure of faith. They preferred to honor their businesses, their governments. 
foreign powers, and it got in the way of their worship. And here they are doing the same thing again, risking their very identities, and they're backsliding. And Nehemiah, once again, he charges the leadership, like, get your act together. He institutes laws to prevent commerce on the Sabbath. He sets his own guards in place to replace the corrupt guards that were taking bribes. And finally, he charges the leadership of the Levites, right? Be the example for the people. Encourage them to follow God's commandments and the instructions of the governor. Listen, God is the creator of all human life, right? He knows the, the importance of rest. He knows the importance of worship. He formed us. He understands us perfectly. The human soul, we know, is, 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 gets tired. We get mentally and physically exhausted. If we continue to work, it breaks us down, whereas, whereas rest and change of pace kind of gives us strength. It rejuvenates us, makes us more effective for work. But resting from work is, is not God's only concern here. As Sabbath was for both man and God. It's for both of us. And God desires worship. And your soul, the human soul, is restless until it finds God. Our hearts are void and empty unless we have God to fill that space. And, and the Bible says that the spirit is dead. It's, it's lifeless without energy unless it's regenerated by the spirit of God. You know, this is, this is not applicable for the church under the new covenant in Jesus to, to adhere to the Jewish civil, the ceremonial laws regarding the Sabbath. But the Lord still commands that we not forsake meeting one another. And his, his, his apostles, you know, they, they reinforce that principle all throughout the New Testament. The church is required to rest and worship as well and to, to appoint a day to observe and remember the Lord. Now listen, Nehemiah finally brings the last charge here. He says, in th those days, 23, in those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. And so I contended with them and I cursed them, struck some of them, and I pulled out their hair, and I made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. And did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet, many, yet among many nations there was no one like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your... your of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was, in this, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Ornite, and therefore I drove him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites, and thus I cleansed them of everything pagan. And I also assigned duties to the priests and Levites, each to his service and to bring in the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This charge here is similar to the first at the beginning of the chapter. But God's people were compromising by marrying unbelievers. The Jewish men had married wives from the surrounding nations of Ashdod, Ammon, right? Moab. But what was, was worse was the effects and the consequences of these marriages. In just one generation, 
we see that the children can no longer speak Hebrew. They didn't read or write in the language of God. And therefore, they were unable to, to read or understand God's law. And we're talking about the potential for a whole generation of children here that were going to be ignorant of God's word. And this offense of, of marrying unbelievers would undermine the very foundation principles, you know, of, of God's society that he was trying to build with Israel. And we can understand that to some degree, right? I mean, the foundations of our society, our constitution, our bill of rights, right? And the spirit in which they were written. Acknowledging God as creator, right? Some of the freedoms that we have to worship God. A government built on Judeo-Christian values is now under attack. And it's rotted from the inside out because we've neglected God's word. And Nehemiah takes these drastic measures here, right? He summons all these guilty parties. He asks God to curse them for their disobedience, for their, their compromise. He disciplines them with beatings. And he disgraces them by pulling out their hair. But Nehemiah gives them an opportunity to renew their oath to God, their commitment not to mix with unbelievers. Now, you might be saying to yourself, like, this is a little excessive, right? Beatings, shame, forced divorces. But this was perfectly acceptable in their day, under their law, under the form of government that, that they were under. It was a theocracy, right? The government dictated by the laws of Moses. And for the church, you know, our leaders, you know, they're not, they're not going to point you out. Pastor Joel is not going to grab you by the back of your neck, bring you up here and beat you in front of the congregation, right? You probably could with all that jujitsu stuff. You know? But he's not going to do that. He's not going to shave your head. He's not going to kick you out in shame. But listen, good leaders are called to call out sin for what it is. And if you're unrepentant in that sin, then there's consequences. Not just for you. But for the congregation, because responsible leaders, they don't allow sin to infiltrate the church and run rampant, hurting all the lives of those that they're entrusted with. And what was happening here in Jerusalem had grave consequences. Many of God's people were, were not going to know who the Lord is. They're endangering their community. And their disobedience was devastating to the work that was going on to build this community of believers, and they're storing up for themselves judgment. Nehemiah reminds them here of, of, of their history, right, of Solomon, probably the most influential and powerful king that Israel's ever seen. We know him for his wisdom, his wealth, as the son of David who built the most physically beautiful temple that Jerusalem's ever seen. Overladen with gold. But listen, Solomon allowed himself to be seduced by the women of the world. And their foreign gods, they influenced his relationship with God. They influenced his foreign policy. All because Solomon, you know, failed to, to guard himself against intermarriage with unbelievers. You know, that's how he conquered the world. He formed peace treaties by marrying the daughters of all these kings that he conquered. And ten tribes, you know, in his day, the, the, the all this result of all this in, intermarriage resulted in civil war in Israel. Ten tribes went to the north. Those ten tribes in the north, unfortunately, they never had one good king. 
Assyria came and decimated those ten tribes. They assimilated into the peoples of the world. The two tribes that went south, Judah and Benjamin, they weren't much different, but they had a handful of godly kings that kind of stayed God's judgment for a little bit. But eventually God brought in Babylon, who decimated the Assyrians, and then they came for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem went into captivity for 70 years. The implication is clear here that when God's people are unequally yoked with unbelievers, it's unbelievers' influence that causes the people of God to go astray. And so don't ever believe that you should marry an unbelieving person in the hopes that you're going to convert them. Right? That's, that's not only irresponsible and dangerous, but it, it's flat-out disobedient to God. And that's no way to start a marriage. Now, for those of you who are saved with an unbelieving spouse, you know, Paul speaks to this situation in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. In 13, he says, you know, in a woman uh, who has a husband who doesn't believe if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if there are unbelievers, who an unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And Paul's basically saying, like, if you're married, don't ask for a divorce. Your devotion to God, it might bring your spouse to salvation. It might bring them to Christ. But he's also saying to, to, that if you become a believer and your spouse despises you for that, if your spouse wants to leave you for being a Christian, there's no condemnation for you. Like you can't force somebody to accept you as a follower of Christ. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't exhaust all efforts to try and make it work, but you're not in sin if they abandon you because you've chosen Christ. Listen, the point is that there's, just, there's no greater institution that God has established on this earth than marriage and a family. And to stain that precious gift of God with unbelieving pagan unions is to undermine what God has ordained. And it's why Nehemiah prays God's judgment on Eliashib and his grandson. He exiles them out of Jerusalem. Leaders are, are the most knowledgeable, they're the most accountable, the most responsible. And when they fail, you know, their punishment and judgment is, it should be more severe. They have greater consequences because they know the truth, they willfully break it, and they set an example for others to do the same thing. And so Nehemiah has no choice here but to get rid of them. They lack the courage to lead, they lack loyalty to God. They couldn't handle the task of shepherding the people. And there's a dire need for men to be leaders in the church, but also in the home. To be godly examples, to be strong in the truth, despite what the world may think. A husband and wife who are, are unified in Christ, who are, are living in righteousness, who are trusting in God's word, are the most potent influence for God in this society. You know, we're raising children to become adults who honor God, who understand and value his ways, right? They go into the world, they build structures, they build communities that are based on the ethics and the values of God's word. They grow up to provide these environments that foster relationship with God. 
And so when anyone threatens to undermine the will of God, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the family, we need to take some severe action like Nehemiah. Because there's no shame, there's no beatings, there's no confrontation that's ever going to be greater than the influence of sin running unchecked in the people of God. Lives are at stake when sin is not confronted. And so I want to close this morning and, and just say, you know, Israel is a great example of God's faithfulness in history. No matter how far Israel strayed, no matter, you know, how far they found themselves away from God, God always remained faithful to them, even to this day, right? It, it, it's a testament to the truth that Israel was, it was conquered in A.D. 70 and, and spread all over the world. And the fact that they're in their land now, 2,000 years later, preserving their culture and their language, is a miracle. It's unexplainable. No other nation or people have ever done that in history. It's a testament to God as a promise keeper. And if we truly belong to him, you know, if we're truly his children, we can trust in God for our ultimate salvation. But listen, Israel is also a great example of dealing with consequences. Because when you turn from God, God, God didn't let Israel's sin go unchecked. He brought correction. He brought discipline to the Israelites, to the Jews, when they were living lives that were not honorable. Israel, from the times in the wilderness with Moses until the times of the captivity, until Nehemiah's time, they always had this issue with foreign gods, straying from God. And it wasn't until the Babylonian captivity that, that that discipline finally hit home. Because after the times of Zerubbabel, after the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, from this point on right here in chapter 13 in your Bible, the Jews never again in history sought out another false god. The correction hit home. And it's not wrong for God to bring that correction. It's loving for him to do so. And we should be thankful that we have a God that doesn't desire that we stay trapped in sin. And so it's why God made that ultimate sacrifice for our sin, right? Why he allowed his own son to take our place in punishment and judgment. Jesus provides the way for us to be restored, to be renewed, to be transformed with new desires, to pursue the, the worship and the holiness of God. And church, it's, it's my desire, as I'm sure it is yours, that, that we be a church that God has called us to be. You know, we have such an incredible privilege and an opportunity coming up here in the next several months with our new building to be a light in this community. And we need to make sure that our house is in order. We need to make sure that we're leading courageously and responsibly, you know, being discerning of enemies that come and seek to undermine God's work. For, for you leaders, we need to ensure that there are structures in place to see good men become strong leaders and teachers of God's word. And they're available to support the growth of our body. We need to make sure our heart's desires are in the things of God, that our, our time, our talents, our finances are used for God's glory and his ministry. And that we're regarding our, our personal spirituality with seriousness. Remembering that we're a dwelling for God. You know, clean out your storage rooms. Make room for the Lord. And finally, we need to make sure we do everything in our power to protect, to love, 
to guide our families into the worship of the Lord. Even if that means we got to lay hands on somebody, right? Listen, I love worshiping with you, church. I love studying his word. And uh, I pray that you're blessed. Let's pray.